at a certain stage in their journey toward the Meccan sanctuary of the Haram, the pilgrim passes what is known as the Miqat, or a stated place. And it's here that a person must transform themselves from a traveler into a pilgrim by entering the Ihram, or sacred state. The words Ihram, Haram, Haram are all intertwined lexically and they all connote sanctity, purity, forbidding, and restraint. The ihram is a state of acknowledging a border between the last remaining physical and psychological barriers between one's worldly life and the beginning of the pilgrimage. It is both a material and immaterial change that takes place. By purifying the body with water and donning a garb of simplicity, the pilgrims are prepared for imagining a timeless time and a spaceless space where they must consider both their origins and their destination, the fitra, which binds them to God and from whence they came, and the death shroud, which awaits them and by which they will return to God. The pilgrims enter the crowd in this sanctified state, already contemplative of the circle of their own lives and ready now to join in even larger circles of humanity, making their way to the same destination as a group, but alone in their accountability before God. In today's episode, we delve into the practice and meanings of the ihram, exploring what it symbolizes and reflect upon the aspects of gathering and aloneness it brings out in the pilgrimage. I'm joined by two dear friends, Drs. Shahid Hanif and Mariam Shaybani. Shahid is the managing director of a not-for-profit research institute and has lived in Dundee, Glasgow, Damascus, Cambridge, and now Ontario, Canada. Mariam Shaybani is Assistant Professor in History at the University of Toronto and part-time lecturer at the Cambridge Muslim College, specializing in medieval Islamic thought and culture. Before we hear from Shahid, who shares his experience of the pilgrimage to Hajj as a student from Damascus 20 years ago and hear from him about what donning the ihram and being a pilgrim meant to him, let's first hear from Maryam about how the ihram is an important symbol for many central concepts in Islamic belief. So, Dr. Maryam Shaybani, perhaps we can start with the symbolism of the ihram and why it's essential to the Hajj ritual. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot we can uh, reflect about and ponder. Um, so it, it's very consistent with um, many of the other acts of worship that we have, where we do things outwardly, we engage in, in outward uh, forms or outward rituals, outward um, uh, behaviors in order to resonate with or reflect on or bring about in ourselves uh, certain inward meanings and inward uh, cultivation of inward states vis-a-vis uh, -vis our relationship with God and our own um, understanding of these, these deeper uh, realities. 
Um, so the entire Hajj, and I'm sure uh, we've you've already kind of thought about this and 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 talked about this with other uh, presenters, but the entire uh, journey is meant as an outward journey that we literally travel, we leave our homes, we travel to another country um, in order to to perform this ritual um, and to to perform these rites in particular uh, spaces at particular times. But the entire endeavor, the entire journey is meant for inward for an inward journey. And if we really just thinking about that is is very remarkable, we could just, you know, um, like the prayer or like the fasting, it could be done where we are in the places that we are in the communities that we reside in. But instead, the Hajj once in our lifetime, at least we actually have to put in that effort, take the time, um, spend of our resources to go and do that. Um, and all of it in, intended uh, for a journey that our hearts are meant to undertake, right? <laughs> Even though the body is kind of carrying uh, the the heart and the spirit to that to that sacred sanctuary, and so the ihram, um, thinking about it within that that broader context, um, also has you know it has these outward um, these outward requirements that are quite you know detailed and stringent. Um, and, and we can think about those, but it, they're intended just like these, the, the broader journey and these other acts of worship uh, to, um, to, to turn us and orient us inwardly. Uh, so the ihram, um, usually we use the word ihram to refer uh, to kind of like the physical, um, the donning of particular garments, but the ihram is really a state, um, a state that is a legal state and a spiritual state that we enter into as a, a way of honoring and venerating the, the sacred precinct, the haram around uh, Mecca. And there's these precise boundaries um, that are delineated around uh, the haram of Mecca, uh, these landmarks in Arabic called miqat uh, or mawaqit, um, that you can't actually pass through to enter Mecca, you can't pass through these boundaries unless you're in this state, right? And to be in this state, um, there's certain obligations, things that you have to do. Um, you have to make the intention, uh, you recite the uh, talbiyah um, uh, or another uh, form of remembrance, uh, veneration of God. And then it's also recommended that you take a bath, you perform uh, your wudu, if not possible to do the bath. You wear uh, certain cloaks uh, for men and for women. You perform two units of prayer, and then you continuously uh, recite uh, the talbiyah. So all of these things um, intended to also bring our attention, right, to what it is that we're about to undertake, right? Um, to really make make that uh, intention and make it deliberate, and also for us to recognize that we're not just going to any place, right? Um, there's no other place. Even Medina, you don't have. There aren't these rites and rituals around it. Um, but that this place is 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 the only place on earth that's sanctified in this particular uh, way. So to think a little bit more about even the linguistic uh, meanings that the term ihram and haram um, that they carry and that they that they uh, connote, um, they both are from the same root of the harama, right? Um, which has this meaning of sacred of uh, forbidden that it is this, this God's sacred uh, precinct that we're about uh, to enter. And when we enter it, we ourselves have to be in this, this pilgrim uh, sanctity as it's often translated. And actually, interestingly enough, um, the 
uh, first takbira or the first glorification in the prayer is called takbirat al-ihram, right? So there's this resonance there that when we enter into the prayer, we're entering into this sacred act, this sacred ritual. And like the ihram makes certain things forbidden upon us, right? The, um, the takbirat al-ihram also makes certain things forbidden. You can't eat, you can't talk, you can't do certain things. You're only engaged in that act of worship. And similarly, that when we enter into the ihram, there's certain things that we can't uh, we can't do. We can't remove uh, bodily hair. Uh, we can't wear certain uh, garments. Uh, we can't marry. We can't uh, be intimate with our spouses, and so on. So all of this, again, outwardly, in order to reorient us uh, inwardly uh, to think about uh, the deeper meanings that we're that we're considering, and, and just to think a little bit more about some of these meanings. Uh, of course. The leaving behind of uh, our worldly attachments and our worldly affairs, um, which is intended to get us thinking about the other things that inwardly we need to leave, right? So we're leaving uh, dressing in certain ways that we can be very, you know, attached to, you know, the way I dress and my style and, and so on. But in that space, everybody is dressed in a certain way in the most kind of simple garments possible. Uh, without you know your your jewelry, without your watches, without your color, <laughs> without your aesthetic, all of that has to be left behind, um, and and it also is mirroring this final transition that we'll have um, uh, in in our transition and our passing from this world to the next, where we will leave everything behind, right? So it's almost a dress rehearsal <laughs> for the final uh, transition where all of these things that we're attached to and that we think maybe define us um, or give us some type of standing or identity that we have to leave all of that behind. And it's, it can be very uncomfortable, particularly in the days of Hajj and especially for, um, for men wearing uh, very uh, basic, uh, the izar and the ridat, the wraparound and the cloak, uh, not having any sewn garments, um, that are that they're wearing in a conventional manner at least and especially nowadays um we're used to wearing very kind of comfortable tailored clothing it might have been less of a of a of kind of a, a stark contrast for pre-modern people that are already really dressing in Rida and Izar that's actually normative dress right um uh, in in the early Muslim community but for us it's it's a very stark difference we probably will never really dress like that again unless we go for Umrah or Hajj again um, and, and also for women, um, that they, are, they enter into the state of ihram, uh, just as men enter into the state. So the state is the intended end, right? The inward state is the intended end, the state of ihram is the intended uh, state to be in, even legally. And then men and women enter into that state in a different way, in terms of outwardly what they wear. Uh, so women also um, should be free of any type of adornment or color. Um, uh, traditionally, women would also wear white um, as a simple garment, and, and then again, also um, resonating with this this final wrapping in the shrouds uh, that that they will uh, be buried in, um, and so on. And the same rules apply in terms of not um, combing or clipping the hair, and not uh, using scented oils and perfumes, and so on. It's incredible that um, you know just this what you've described this outward change is really kind of trans in to use your word transforming space 
and transforming time. It's hearkening to death. It's hearkening ahead of you. And it's hearkening to something behind you. It's hearkening to the space that you've left behind and the space that you're about to enter. It really is, even at this early stage in our conversation, I already feel as if Ahram is, you know, a time travel, it's a time and space, um, you know, continuum ripper. It immediately is is doing something incredibly important and expansive, way beyond what its what its capacity is. You know, so that makes me think a lot about how the the practice of the ihram connects us with time and place. And how does how does the ihram sort of link Muslims of any time and place with the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and with the prophets um that were before and even longer and longer going back to the full chain of prophecy all the way to to the prophet Adam you know this kind of primordial chain of prophecy how does the ihram link link us between these times and places mm-hmm. yeah great question um so i mean one thing that um that's often reflected upon is the words of of the talbiya which i didn't really talk too much about but that we 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 state labbaik allahumma labbaik alongside our intention for entering into the state of ihram and once we enter into that state you know we're kind of locked in right you can't actually exit that state until you've performed the ritual so it, it really it 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 um it is is asking of us that we be very deliberate and we take what we're doing very seriously even the salah you can start it and you can you can exit the prayer but and fasting Right, but with with the ihram, it really locks you into that state um, that you are now uh, undertaking and you've committed to undertaking this 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 journey. But we say this: "Labbaik Allahumma labbaik." Uh, here I am at your service, O oh God. Here I am, and then we continuously are recommended to continuously repeat that um, for us as we make the journey uh, to into the haram and to the 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 pre, the, the actual uh, haram of, of of Mecca and the sacred mosque. That we are um, that we are um, trying to cultivate in ourselves the state of uh, of seeking God and of of orienting ourselves towards uh, towards that meeting uh, with uh, with God inwardly. But when they talk about this they say that that's our response to God on the tongue of Abraham inviting and calling us to the Hajj. And so, in the verse of the Quran where God commands Abraham to build the or rebuild right rebuild importantly the the holy mosque he says bilhaj. so you, he builds it and then he says and he's literally in this desert there's nobody anywhere and he tells him to make a then right to make this call to the people right to come to the hajj and just thinking about his his faith and we know about hajar's faith in that space and just everything that happened there and we're responding to Abraham's call on behalf of God to come to Hajj. However, many, you know, thousands of years ago, we're saying, okay, God, I heard this call. I heard this invitation. And here I am in 2022, responding to this call that Abraham made and that you commanded him to make in whatever year that was, right? So definitely outside of space and time and yet connecting us uh, to, to that moment. And then when the rituals that we're undertaking, so starting with the talbiyah, starting with the miqat, starting with all of that is following in the footsteps 
of Abraham as taught to us by the Prophet Muhammad And we know even that Adam was the first one to have built the Kaaba and to have gone and, and circumambulated the Kaaba. So we're, it connects. And then of course, when we're there, we're fortunate enough, and this is a real distinction of our of our religious community that we actually know that Abraham was in that. All of the prophets were told, right, where they all made this pilgrimage to Mecca, right, and that Hajar and Ismail are buried in that space. We know exactly where the Prophet Muhammad stood, where he kissed the black stone, where he stood to do the two rakhas behind. We know everything, so we're literally physically breathing that that air right standing in the same spot where they stood which is a real like it's a huge blessing and it's 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 especially in the modern era where we've just lost so much and there's so many discontinuities and we think about modernity as this massive rupture with the the, the old world and traditional life and tradition and the prophets and all we're completely just mentally psychologically spiritually emotionally distanced or we feel that we are Right, and this brings you right back. Actually, they were here. This is what they did, and what you're doing is exactly what they did. And you're actually responding to the call uh, of of Abraham. And another maybe dimension of this space time, you know, uh, I don't know how you described it, but these these multiple dimensions is the fact that right above us, as we're before the Kaaba, there's these angels that have been, you know, circumambulating the Kaaba and performing tawaf and all of and praying and prostrating in the same space that we're that we're prostrating in and that we're circumambulating. So we're connected to the prophets and we're connected to these heavenly realms and dimensions. And we feel that right people go, they don't even if they don't haven't pondered any of this, they've never heard it, they just feel there's something there's a there's a electricity or whatever there's a there's a, what's the word an energy there's something in mecca that you even you don't find it's a very different energy and intensity that's in mecca and the closer you get to the kaaba even if you're as you're doing tawaf the closer you get it just you feel it right mm-hmm. um and even you know there's just so much so much there that we could think about well you've taken us now into this realm of how large the gathering truly is it's it's not just seen but also unseen beings you know the 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 apparent and the uh internal as you already have brought it out uh repeatedly in your in what you're saying um so, you know so now that we understand that wearing this ihram makes us a part of much uh, so many gatherings, a gathering of pilgrims, a gathering of circling beings, a gathering of um, beings that worship their creator. What um, can you tell us a little bit, Mariam, about how, you know, what does the Ahram tell us about the kind of communal aspects of the Hajj and the individual aspects of the Hajj? Um, we're certainly in a gathering and yet we're by ourselves. Can you tell us a little bit about about that, um, about those two states that we are in during this, um, during the wearing of this ihram? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and again, all of the acts of worship and the five pillars, they have these dual mm-hmm. dimensions of the individual and the personal and the, the spiritual and the interiorized. And then they also have these communal and collective and exteriorized dimensions that we, we need to also uh, think about um, and the Hajj, you know, the the donning of the ihram and this and the, the stating of the talbiya, uh, it it has this effect of humility, you know, uh, bringing everybody into a state of humility, of equality, of unity, right? That we're all dressed the same way, 
and it's the, the rules are so stringent that you really can't do anything extra. You can't, you know, you can't, you can't, you can buy a more expensive ihram, but no one's going to notice, <laughs> right? Um, and so everybody in that space comes before God, as we will on the Day of Judgment, where everything that you have, you think you have of knowledge, of uh, wealth, of status, whatever it might be, you're the same. So you're a king next to a, 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 a you know, someone of, of, of limited means, someone who, who who's comes from a humble background, they're both, they look identical, right? And they're, they're moving through the crowd in the same way. There's no hierarchy. There's no specialness. Like if I'm, I have, this is my status, even in knowledge or in, in, in spiritual attainment, everybody is equal in that space. And you don't know where, you know, uh, God's elect are even within those crowds. So it brings, it brings out of us, um, that humility, that recognition that we are all equal before God. And the only thing that distinguishes us is in the sight of God, right? In Akramakum and Allah that the most noble are those who have the greatest taqwa, the greatest God consciousness. And that we, you know, that 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 the the cloak of taqwa, libasu taqwa right? In this context of that the the dress and the the the, the, the adornment of taqwa, libas, literally physical clothes of taqwa that's better right that's greater that's the greatest so in 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 um cultivating in us that recognition that whatever i have or i think i have it's first of all it's this dress rehearsal right that on the day of judgment you're going to come to god with nothing nothing is going to benefit and this also that verse about you know is also coming through Abraham, right? That that day that neither wealth nor power, uh, wealth nor children, which is uh, a symbol of power and status, will be of benefit, except the one who comes to God with the sound heart, right? And in another verse that God describes Abraham, that he came to God with a sound heart. So he attained that, and God is, is, is saying on his tongue again, in the Quran that it, that's the only thing that's beneficial. So all of these meanings, right, are, are related, related to outwardly what we wear, inwardly who we are and what we're cultivating, um, and this this sound heart that we're seeking uh, to attain. And the Hajj is, is a conduit to that, inshallah, it's an opportunity in a time when our sins are forgiven and we have a fresh uh, start um, with, uh, with our Lord and also with one another, right? That it's recommended that we seek forgiveness from people before we take, undertake the Hajj, pay our debts, reconcile, uh, any relationships and so on, that that's the, the recommendation before you enter into Ihram, that you, you settle all of your worldly affairs and all of your worldly, um, relationships. And that if one doesn't do that, and then they go to the Hajj, and they start the ihram and they say, you know, here I am, God, at your service. There's many narrations that say that if a person comes to, to the ihram and comes to do the hajj and they're an oppressor or the wealth that they use to get there is actually not from uh, permissible means, meaning that they stole or they, they bribed or whatever it is that they did to collect that money, which doesn't belong to them that God responds to labaik Allahumma labaik with la labaik wa la sa'daik, right? That no, you're not in my service, you're not coming to me, and no, I'm not pleased to have you and to welcome you here, right? And that's another aspect of this communal aspect that we, we have to reconcile these relationships and reconcile the harms and the wrongs that we've done 
before we come to God claiming that we're giving ourselves over to him. I come to you, my Lord, here I come. And the intention is that fully and forever that, you know, we're giving ourselves over to God and starting a new page in our, in our relationship uh, with God. That, that's, that, has to, that claim has to also be upheld in terms of the rights of others and not just to say, I, I've, come to, I've come to Hajj and that should be sufficient. Mariam, after we do the full circle of the Hajj, the, you know, we've walked around, um, we've worn the ihram, we've done the Hajj, and then we take it off again. What, what do you think the pilgrim is supposed to take with them after that ihram is removed? You're out of the state of this ritual purity now. What, where, where do you go next? I think the entire Hajj experience is meant to take us out of our selves, right? Out of our habits, our habitual ways of being and doing and engaging with people, with the world, with God in our own personal, um, in our own personal worship and to take us to a, a new, it's a new birth, right? It's like as though <laughs> the day your mother bore you, but also that you're now, and, and that's the spirit of the Hajj, that you're now orienting away from the world and towards the hereafter, right? So you've, you've had this dress rehearsal, you've gone to God, your heart has gone to God physically, and that now you're ready to go to God in the fuller sense, spiritually, to, you know, you've arrived at God's house physically, and you're going to arrive at God's presence, right? You've arrived at God's pre physical you know, the, the symbol of God's physical presence in this world as Mecca and as the house. And now you're ready to go to God and his presence in the fuller sense in the hereafter. Um, and that's always been the sense. And sometimes like historically, people would delay the Hajj because they wanted to be ready that once they come back from Hajj, they're not going back to their old ways, right? And they are really settling there. And of course it was, as, as I'm sure others have discussed, it was a difficult journey that you really might actually not come back, right? So it, for them, it was like, I'm done with the worldliness that I was engaged in of, you know, establishing my career, raising my family, whatever it might be. And now I'm moving into this next stage where I'm going to be more fully, um, more fully uh, devout and and uh, devoted uh, to God. And it also reminds me of the the hadith that's often mentioned in the spiritual literature of, you know, mutu qabla anta mutu, right? Like die before you die, right? And there's so much that's written and pondered about that, that particular hadith of what does that mean, die before you die? What are we dying from? If it's not physical death, then it's something else. And it's meant to be that the spiritual death of the lower ego, of the base ego, and therefore with it, a new life, like you mentioned, of the spirit and of the heart, directed by the spirit and directed by the heart and towards oriented towards um, being in the presence of God in this world so that the transition into the next world isn't a stark contrast because you're already mentally, physically, spiritually in that state of ihsan, right? Of being, witnessing God, witnessing you or just witnessing uh, God uh, all the time. A time-traveling garment that links a pilgrim to their own certain and impending death and again to a time in the future when we will all be gathered before God in our most natural, primordial states is not what I expected to hear when I began my conversation with Dr. Shaybani. I'm also intrigued by the idea she spoke of that Mecca is the only place for which entry is predicated upon being in this sacred state of ihram. 
I want to ask Shahid about his experience of the ihram and whether or not he too recognized something inward happening concurrent to an outward change in his hajj back in 2003. So Shahid, can you tell us a little bit about that hajj, how it began, how you decided to do it, and what took you there and how you made your caravan to, to the holy cities? I mean, my hajj came around, I can't remember if I had kind of originally intended as such, but I, I did move, I did kind of live in Damascus for about a year, and I think it was while I was there, I thought, oh, it'll be, I'm I'm closer to, uh, to, to Saudi, I'm closer to do hajj, and I thought, well, it would be, it would be good to make the intention to, to go and do hajj uh, at that particular time. Um, so that's how I kind of originally thought thought around it, and then I think it was interesting because we, where I was in Damascus and the classes that I was in in the Arabic classes, we just asked around if anyone else was going to do it, and um, essentially didn't just a couple of us kind of decided, okay, inshallah, we're going to try and go to Hajj, not knowing exactly what that's going to entail, traveling from Damascus to uh, to to Saudi as opposed to going from the UK to for for Hajj. And how did you make your way there? Was it plane, trains, automobiles, what foot? <laughs> oh no! I mean, we we had, we had no idea what we were doing. I mean, I had no idea what we were doing, how we were going to get our visa, and you know, we had a we had a really interesting kind of story about trying to even get our visa, where we, uh, we we kind of tried to go to the embassy. Where there was a huge lineup. You realize that the Syrian process is very different to what your process is, kind of should be. Eventually, we worked out that we 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 needed to. And the funny story really was was that someone had suggested that we speak to someone from uh, the Saudi embassy and we didn't know who this person was uh, and eventually we were just walking by a falafel shop and we just looked in and we saw a guy with a briefcase and we thought let's just ask him and it turned out to be that same person and he helped and he helped facilitate getting our visa so it's, it was it was very it was very uncanny. You know, we've heard from so many people in this series about how you just get selected, how the whole universe really does conspire. Yeah. Is that how it felt for you too? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were so many incidences which happened, which you think that uh, kind of, you know, which all conspired towards this happening. And and one of those other ones was when we were about to, 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 to leave Damascus, I think we realized uh, that... Uh, I realized that about the night before that we didn't have our Hijrijawzat, um, like our uh, entry and exit visa, you know, in order to leave and then come back. And I thought we won't be able to come back again. And of course, we'd already been to the Saudi airline office and kind of, you know, booked our flight and everything and confirmed uh, everything as well. And I think it was a holiday the next day, so we had to change our flight. So we had to go back to the Saudi airline office and we asked them to get our kind of booking confirmation out and of course there everything was done on paper so here they had papers of like 300 to 400 applications for each flight you know and we told them which flight we were on and we just he said wait you want me to go through this whole pile and we're like yes please <laughs> and he went through it and he managed to find our application so things like that which which happened which you kind of just thought well, the fact that kind of, you know, the, we, he was able to find the application, he was willing to do that as well. It was uh, it was it was kind of pretty amazing. And, and, you know, the main part, even getting the visa in the first instance, I mean, we really didn't had no idea what we were doing. And so things really did conspire to 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 help facilitate things. 
Can you tell us a little bit about your experience following um, this incredible adventure to actually get there of just joining the crowd of pilgrims, of putting, you know, of getting into the state of Ihram, what it meant to you and, and a little bit about the experience of sort of transforming from a person into a pilgrim? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things is quite often people travel uh, for Hajj in groups. And I think I'd made kind of the decision to try and kind of travel myself, you know, and uh, not necessarily to be part of a group as such. And I think that was also kind of interesting as you were transitioning into becoming kind of a Hajji. And, and I think one of the other experiences was was traveling with uh, with basically Bedouins from, from Damascus who'd never been on a flight, which was kind of really interesting as well. And once you kind of arrive, of course, you know, then you, you do don your kind of ihram. Um, and and I think the, the the experience is probably similar to a lot of people where you where you kind of realize that you know you're there for a particular purpose you know and um, and as you don your kind of ihram you uh, are are very kind of mindful and very focused on that and you do want to shut shut out kind of everything and all kind of distractions and I think that's one of the reasons why um kind of I wanted to try and you know not get distracted by 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 so many other things and really start thinking a, a little bit more kind of internally about wearing the ihram what that means and you know that you're that you're there just for the for the for the sake of Allah you know and so of course it kind of means both uh, preparing yourself both outwardly and inwardly, and and I think the as you as I'm sure you're aware and others have experienced as well, it's the inward aspect which is very difficult to shift your frame of of thinking and shape frame of 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 mind coming from where you are and and what you've been what you're thinking about and things like that as well to just this sole kind of reason and sole purpose of of being there, and of course the other part of being there within a crowd is you know you're almost meaningless kind of within there within those millions of people who are you you know you're just another individual there for for the sake of Allah and you're you're um you know so it, it's kind of interesting how quite often I think in our in our lives as well you feel like you want to do something uh you know, either you want to be something, you want to do something meaningful, purposeful, or you want to be known, for example, and there, you know, you only want to be known by from by Allah in terms of your intention for being there and the things that you end up doing, because a lot of your your actions are, um, you know, you're, you've kind of intended for the sake of Allah, whether kind of people see them or not, but you... Um, you know, you have to realize that every single action, every single thing that you're doing, you're there, you're doing for the sake of Allah. Did it feel like the crowd, and one thing we're talking about in this podcast a lot is, you know, this is the unique pillar that is intentionally in a crowd, in a, in a gathering, in this gigantic gathering, not just a small one. And you talked a little bit about how you chose to actually separate yourself a little bit in a way from, from the maybe the more well-known way of doing a hajj. Can you tell us a little bit about why, why that decision felt felt like the right way to do it and and how it impacted upon your experience in the Hajj in the end? Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was really that you... I, I think what I kind of did want to do from the very outset was that I did want to... You do want to kind of experience the Hajj, in a sense, through 
the way that the Prophet would have. So I did want to walk everywhere. You know, I think I was very, um, I was very intent on making sure that I tried to kind of walk from place to place because I'd, I'd heard from people traveling before. You know, I think there's uh, people traveling in buses and, 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 and whatnot and, you know, getting caught in traffic, sometimes kind of feeling frustrated about that as well. So I think I, I definitely wanted to have more of the walking experience and feeling as if you're part of that crowd as well. And I think what's really interesting about that car, that being a part of that crowd is that, you know, you on on for the one thing, one thing that it reminded me of was that there's just like millions of people there. So it reminded me of things like, you know, Yom al-Hashr when there's the gathering and everyone's kind of together. It also reminded me of, of, of kind of armies, you know, in the kind of traditional period, if there were armies of these people, this is this is what it would have looked like if you were traveling kind of together. And and certainly in caravans, which um kind of from from before there were the the ease of traveling by by plane and by car and so forth you know they would have been caravans of people coming from all directions coming all to 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 to, to Mecca, you know and going for their hajj and um so just kind of connecting to to to, to that i think was really uh kind of important for 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 me um and and there were a couple of things which happened which uh, i thought were really interesting one of which was when I uh, kind of travelled, when we travelled from Mecca to um, to the mosque in Mina, where they ended up doing the khutbah, and after the khutbah kind of finished, and this is the day of Arafah, and we were kind of getting ready to leave, and I was upstairs, and, you know, as we started moving down, uh, we were on the stairwell, which was very wide and, and, and big, but what essentially happened was the police kind of stopped pilgrims kind of walking down and walking out um, just because so they could allow people downstairs moving. And all of a sudden, you know, they started becoming pushing and, and, and so forth, you know, and you could feel that um, the tensions were kind of rising and also that, you know, people were feeling uncomfortable. And, you know, if you've if you've been in, it's really interesting, if you've been in a kind of a crowd such as when you're in Hajj, you realise there's actually no space to move. So you have to try and keep your feet, you know. And if you don't keep your feet, then you end up kind of falling. But also at the same time, the crowd can sway you from from one way to another. And you could have like you're pivoting just on the spot, you know. Um, But what kind of happened, which was amazing, was that um, suddenly people started reciting out the tal- Talbiyah. You know, and as soon as people started reciting the talbiyah, other people followed, and before you know it, the whole stairwell was reciting the talbiyah, and everything within seconds just went from being very tense to being completely calm. You know, and it was an amazing experience, and I think we stood there for a good, for a good five minutes at least or so. You know, everyone just reciting the talbiyah and. Is one of the the most amazing experiences in my life because everything was just very so calm, and then what happened afterwards was also really interesting to me because as we, as we walked down as as people were passing, they kept on looking up because they heard all of us reciting the talbiyah, so they were just kind of really amazed about that going on, and then, you know, and then as people had left and they started to allowing us to kind of. Uh, to flow out, people kept on reciting the Talbiyah until you walked out of the mosque and then you could slowly, you know, people started dispersing and, you know, people, that that Talbiyah just went fainter and fainter until it was just you, you know, and uh, and I remember at that time, I just thought, 
you really wanted to hold on to kind of that moment so much, you know, because it was uh, such a profound moment where you felt like you were together with everyone uh, and then all of a sudden you're out by yourself again. Shahid, um, I want to ask you if there's anything that I didn't ask you about that you'd want to share with our uh, the people who will get to listen to this podcast, inshallah. Anything else that you'd like to reflect on for those listeners? Yeah, there is a, another little story which I do want to tell as well, which was uh, kind of equally, to my mind, very amazing as well. And it was actually when I was after the day of Arafah was 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 completed um that uh, while i was walking back from Arafah to Muzdalifa and as i started walking uh you know kind of reciting the talbiyah you were kind of reciting it a little bit loudly a bit to yourself and before you know it uh, there was just a couple of kids who were began kind of you know r- repeating after me and of course i, I gathered they were reciting the Talbiyah just straight after me. They must have been, they were kind of young teenagers, about 14, 15 or so. And, um, and they, uh, they, so they just kind of kept on reciting after me. And, uh, and before you know it, we got into a groove, you know, where of course I realized that that's what they wanted me to do. And, and, and they, they were kind of stuck close to me and we kind of walked along. And the interesting thing was, was that uh, they were walking along, but they also had a wheelbarrow. And in that wheelbarrow, they had all of their belongings. So this was really strange to me because I did not see anyone else there with a wheelbarrow, you know. So we kind of walked together. And I think, you know, they, they were, they must have been from, um, I think they were from some, some place in, in in West Africa. And we, we walked and we walked that whole of the journey. And, you know, I remember saying to them, they, they kind of, we stopped and, in my broken Arabic, kind of said, oh, it's, um, you know, the, the, we, we kind of talked about kind of traveling together. And I said, okay, well, we'll walk together so long as I get to push the wheelbarrow as well. And they said, no, look, you said, your job is to just do the talbiya. Our job is to push the wheelbarrow. Uh, and actually, one time I did try taking the wheelbarrow, but it was heavy. And I have no idea how those kids did it. But, you know, I tried pushing it for a period of time and I was exhausted. Uh, but they, they, mashallah, had, uh, had, had so much uh, so much strength and so much uh, willpower as well that we kind of had, a, had an amazing trip together as we walked back to Mazdalifa before we, we parted ways. Um, and I think the one other interesting reflection for me is, is that uh, not just in Mecca, but also when I went to Medina as well, I kind of met people who from both from my hometown and people who I'd kind of known from London and so forth as well. And they were just kind of amazing interactions because I would never have expected that. And there were there was even someone who kind of I, I, I met, it was one of my brother's kind of old friends who who I met while in being in Medina. And then, uh, you know, I found out about six months later that he passed away, you know. And so you, it's kind of, it's amazing to think that that was your last interaction kind of with this person as well, you know. So it was uh, on, on many levels, you know, and uh, I'm sure people who have already related a lot of stories about their Hajj experience as well. There are, there are so many incidents, incidences to, to, to kind of replay that were so special and so kind of amazing that you would have thought that you know you're 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 really grateful to Allah SWT to have both invited you for the Hajj but also to have taken care of you as well you know and I definitely fe- felt like I was a, a guest who was well taken care of. One,
the whole universe conspiring for Shahid to be present in the Hajj reiterates how within the macrocosm of the multitudes are the microcosms of individuals, all of whom have been chosen by divine providence in that particular year to visit the Haram sanctuary. And because the Kaaba is a place unlike any other place, the visitors are required to undertake both an outward and an inward preparation in its totality, in the sense of writing one's affairs with others, as Maria mentioned, and also performing the physical rites required to enter into that state of ihram. And in so doing, the pilgrims are connected not only to each other, but to every other pilgrim in the history of the holy sanctuary in a sacred chain from Adam to Abraham to Muhammad, peace be upon them, and also connected to their next onward journey and being taught the pilgrims in the most physical, visual, and tangible way in the Hajj to die before they die. I want to thank our guests once again for the insightful and beautiful recollections And many thanks to you all for tuning in to this episode of our podcast. Your continued support of Cambridge Muslim College enables us to train the next generation of Muslim thinkers. Please consider making a donation to the college today to ensure we continue this valuable work. And tune in next time as we continue exploring the circles in the Hajj, beginning with the Tawaf.